If you have your Bibles, open them up to Matthew chapter 6. So we'll, we'll come back to that illustration, so, so bear with me. Dude, how do people preach with only one hand? That's tough. So we're back to walking through our uh, sermon, as, our series, sermon series as we go through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And so we're finally, I think it took us like two and a half months just to get through chapter 5. Um, we're going to start chapter 6. If my calculations are correct, which I don't know if that makes any sense, we should be done with the Sermon on the Mount by like mid-June, maybe? We'll see. But it's fun, right? I at least am having a good time. Matthew chapter 6. Let me just start us off by reading the passage. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Otherwise, you'll have no reward with your Father in heaven. So whenever you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be applauded by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you give to the poor, don't, left your, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that you, your giving may be in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. I was thinking this week about this concept of motivation. Motivation is a really weird thing because motivation doesn't like literally exist. I mean, we know it does, but it, it's invisible. You can't feel it. You can't like harness it and sell it. And people like try to like buy this tea and it'll motivate you. And it's like, well, maybe, but it, it doesn't work that simplistically. Motivation is weird. And even when you have it, like, you, you can't necessarily see it, and you can't judge it and know what it is. Let me see if I can explain that a little bit more tangibly. Going to Bible college, uh, there were other guys around me in school that all had some desire or motivation to go into ministry. I mean, that's why we were studying the Bible in college. That's why we wanted to do that, because we all had this desire to go and help in churches and to do things like that. And I would love to say that the motivation was always, you know, we loved Jesus, and we just really wanted to help people come to love Jesus more and, and better, and that was everyone's motivation in the class. Now, if you know anything about people, you know that's not always the case, Right? Because there was a couple of people, like one, one of my buddies, you know, he, he flunked his math major and he was just like, maybe theology is better for me and that's more intriguing. Which I'm not saying it's a bad motivation, I'm just saying like it's not the mo motivation. Or uh, I would meet guys sometimes that they just, they desperately wanted to be influential and liked and in some position of authority. So ministry got them into that position of authority. I knew guys that all they wanted was to like walk into a mega church and, and find out how they could be the pastor of that mega church in some capacity. And in fact, one of my closest friends in college Come to find out, he just wanted to game the system and create false trust, and now he's serving 40 years in prison, and that's a whole other story for a whole other time. But here, here's my point. If you could go back to 2012, and you could sit in the back of Dr. Green's Theology One class and watch as, as 19 kind of young men sit around and talk theology... You might can make assumptions based off of the motivation of who's dozing off and who's engaged in the conversation, but declaratively knowing another person's motivation in that setting, and in any setting, is nearly impossible. It's so much so that you can't really look at someone's actions even and then say definitively, I know their motivation. We, we know this very well in what we call the age of the image. 
Because what you'll see is, you know, you'll see that, I'm going to use the word politician because they're the easiest to pick on, so we'll just pick on them. You see that politician helping that old lady cross the street, and you think, I knew that person was a good person. And then you pan over to see the news crew, like, recording him. You're like, oh, this was all set up to make, like, how do you know a person's motivation just by looking at the action? And maybe it's a little bit counterintuitive, but we can just use this right here as, I think, a reasonable example. So let me ask, what is my motivation for standing up here this morning? For, for standing in front of a church proclaiming the, the word of God. Let me start here. Is that a good thing? I think so. I mean, it's why I love to do it. Like, I think that standing before people, opening God's word, talking through God's word is incredibly important, and it is a good thing to do. But what's my motivation for it? Because I could be up here because, man, I, I just, I love Jesus so much. and I want you to know how you can love and be loved by Jesus. And, and yeah, wonderful. Or I could be here because it's my job and it's, it's how I get paid. And I have a son on the way. And apparently those kids, they cost money. And so I really need that upcoming paycheck. Is this just part of my job of earning that, that paycheck? Like, it could be my, my motivation. Or it could be like, I, as a kid, never experienced having control or power, and so now I'm like compensating for that. Like, I just need as much power over people as possible, and the, the, the pulpit is the best way to feel influential. So that's, I'm just, I, that's what I want. It could just be like, I just like when people look at me. Like, I like being the person that everyone's attention is on. So what's my motivation? It's not a fun, again, counterintuitive, probably not the greatest way, especially if you're new. You're like, oh, I thought I liked it here. Now I'm really weirded out because... That's not my point. My point is, it's impossible to know definitively the motivation of the heart. And if you really want to know an honest answer to that question of what's my motivation, it's actually even more complicated than just that. Because my, my honest desire is I do love Jesus and I want other people to know Jesus. But if I was just blatantly and frankly honest with you, my motivation is not always 100% pure. It turns out it's really hard not to tie ego into being liked. And I really like being liked. It sure makes me feel good when people are nice to me. And so I want to give all my own motivation can be busted. And I personally have to keep that in check, especially with the good things God has tasked me to do. This, this is why Martin Luther, one of his more famous quotes is, doing good is more dangerous than sinning. It sounds weird, but, but the idea is we can do all the right things and good things, but if you take good things and you do them with problematic motivation, it takes the good and ruins it into the bad. And welcome to what Jesus is dealing with. Because it turns out we all have to stop and ask ourselves often, why am I doing this good thing? Because even the most obvious of what, what I'll call spiritual disciplines, and, and we'll get into that, even the most obvious of spiritual disciplines can do more harm than good if the motivation is off. So this is what Jesus is attacking next. What is the motivation behind these things that we should be doing? 
So we've wrapped up chapter 5. We've wrapped up Jesus' commentary on the different Torah commands and explaining the necessity of heart transformation over behavior modification for Jesus. It's never about the to-do list of good works. It's about God changing your heart from the inside out, and that transformation causes you to want to do not, not just the list of good works, but even deeper than that, to be the type of person God created you to be. And then with that in mind, Jesus is going to kind of pose this question, not, not literally, but I think it's under the surface. How does heart transformation impact the daily actions of right and good behavior? How does heart transformation impact the daily actions of what we might call spiritual disciplines? Now, in, my, in our day, when I say spiritual disciplines, uh, likeliness is if you've been in church and you've heard that word, you think of things like reading your Bible, praying, going to church. And yes, those are spiritual disciplines. There's a lot more than just that. But these things that we would get in and we would say, hey, a good Christian does this every single day. Those are spiritual disciplines. But yet I know people that have read their Bible every day for the last years, and they're still not close to God. I know people that come to church Sunday after Sunday. I'm not saying in here, but people that come to church Sunday after Sunday, and they're no closer to God. So what goes on when the behavior modification doesn't connect you the way you think it's supposed to? So Jesus is going to address this through three of the most common spiritual disciplines of his day. The three being giving to the poor, praying, and fasting. Now, that being said, as Jesus talks about these things, he doesn't really go into depth into the premise of why that spiritual discipline exists. He doesn't say, you need to give to the needy because that's how your Father in heaven acts. He gives to needy people. Now, Jesus does do that back in chapter 5 when he talks about loving your enemy. But here he doesn't go into that type of explanation. Instead, he just lists it, and he says, when you do these things, so he assumes, hey, my followers should be doing these types of actions and then he attacks the motivation. When you do these things, don't do it because of this, but do it because of this. He'll go into a little bit more depth in the prayer thing. Uh, Pastor David will be preaching about that section next week. Uh, but I want to start today with this idea of giving to the poor and motivation behind it. Because the big focus of Jesus here is the ability we all have to misplace our motivation and, and begin to make our decisions based on how others view us. Let's break it down. Chapter 6, verse 1. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Now, if you're paying a little bit of close attention and you know the Sermon on the Mount really well, you know that there's a passage back in chapter 5 where Jesus is going to say, verse 16, In the same way, let your light shine among others so that they may see your good works. I'm like, wait a minute, Jesus, are you contradicting yourself here? In chapter 5, and by the way, if you would have said, in chapter 5, Jesus, he would say, what's chapter 5? This is just a sermon. It doesn't have chapters and verse numbers in it. But Jesus, a while back, you said, let your, good, your light shine and your good works be seen. And now you're saying, don't let your good works be seen. Which is it? And it all hinges on that phrase that follows right afterwards. Because in verse 16, Jesus is going to say, let them see your good works so they may see the, or give glory to your Father in heaven. And at the end of this, says, don't practice righteousness that you may be seen by them. So wherever we land on our motivation, the very starting point of Jesus right here is anytime your motivation is self-focused, anytime it's I need to be seen, I need to be the one that, that gets credit for this, you've already lost. You've already failed at what God is calling you to do. 
Because for, for this thing we call faith and this heart transformation, it's not about anything any of us could do to earn credit. It's all about what God does for us. It's not about our fame. It's not about our accolades, our talents, or anything like that. It's about what God does through us. So be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others that you might be seen by them. Otherwise, you will have no reward with your Father in heaven. So, and he just assumes, when you give to the poor, when you give to the needy. Verse 2. Jesus just assumes that anyone that claims his name, anyone that follows him, will be generous. That, that they'll be interested in giving and finding ways that they can take parts of them, sacrifice it for the betterment of someone that may not have what they have. This is mostly from giving to the temple or the synagogue in Jesus' day, which in turn would take that money and distribute it among people in the community. Um, and, and so just a little plug here. We, we try to, at First Baptist, match that same idea. So you may not know this, but when you give to First Baptist, right off the top, 17.5% of every dollar that comes in is re-given to different missional needs within our community and then within the globe from the International Mission Board all the way down uh, to the Spanish church plant that I talked about earlier. All of these things are involved in what you give to First Baptist, and that's not including the money we give to different camps and the money we give to the food bank and all of this other stuff. And so there, there's my little pitch. So if you're like, man, I really need to do better about giving money to the needy, we can help you with that. But let me back up from that. I just got to put the little plug there. But that's not what Jesus focuses on as much here. He just says, when you give to the needy, verse 2, don't sound a trumpet before you like the hypocrites do. So back, back to the children's sermon here. That term trumpet is this, this idea of show, shofar. So this is what, what a shofar looks like. Um, I think sometimes we read this passage and we assume uh, that like the Pharisees were the type of people that they walked through town and they had like a little fanfare trumpet boy behind them. And they're like, hey, trumpet boy, blow the trumpet because I'm going to give money to this poor person. Everyone come see, come watch. When you read uh, Jewish writings, you don't see anything like that from the Pharisees. Likeliness is that's, that's a mischaracterization of what's going on. Instead, it has something to do, I think, and what most people think, with the shofar being the means by which people gave to the temple their almsgiving. So here's a quote from the Mishnah that has to do with shekel dues or, or giving your dues. Uh, how would the money changers collect all the shekelim? That's the plural for shekel. Uh, in each and every city, they positioned two chests before them. The bottoms of the chest were wide and the tops were narrow like a shofar so that the money could be deposited in them but could not be removed from them easily. So the idea being, I think what Jesus is doing, is he's doing this little play on word with the word trumpet. Because you would have, and you see this in the parable Jesus tells in Luke about the widow's mite who comes and just drops a little bit in. Because you would have people and they would drop just so much money. They would get it in smallest denominations so it looked like they were just sounding out loud how much money they were giving. And Jesus says, no one's glorified in that. But when you give, don't sound the trumpet. It's not about being recognized. It's about giving and doing the things you're supposed to do for the right motivation. The more money you put in, the more vigorously then you got to have this attention. And Jesus says, that's what hypocrites do. So he goes on to say, don't give money like that in the temple. Don't sound trumpets when you give, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be applauded by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. Now, likely it says you've heard that word hypocrite plenty of times. 
It's one that's become very prevalent, especially in the modern world, uh, but, but it's morphed meanings over the years. It has a far more negative connotation today than what it did in Jesus' day. When Jesus uses the term hypocrite, it doesn't really have a negative connotation whatsoever. Uh, it's the Greek word that really just means actor, hypocrisy. It's the person that stands on stage and puts on a play for your entertainment. And it actually seems to be thematic to what Jesus is doing in this passage. Because if you go back to verse 1, he'll say, hey, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. That term, to be seen, is the Greek word uh, theoreo. That's a fun word to say, right? Theoreo. Uh, It comes from a similar Greek word that means theotron, which is where we get our word theater. Theo, to be seen. So Jesus is saying, these people are just putting on a show. They're, they're, they're doing a theater, and they are the hypocrites. They are the actors in the play. So I, I say all that to say, when Jesus condemns this, he's pointing out something that we understand that it's a problem because they're just acting. But it doesn't have that exact negative connotation that it does in today. And then he gives his reasoning. He says, when they do this, they're doing it to be applauded by people. And I tell you, they've already received their reward. They've already gotten what they're looking for. Typically, we look at hypocrisy and we condemn it because it damages the reputation of the church. Don't don't be a hypocrite. Don't be that type of person that says you believe this way and then go and act this way. So, So please, like, please don't leave here today. Go out to eat, berate your waitress, and then leave a 50 cent tip. Do that. That's not helpful to what we say we believe as a church and how we respond to the people that may not believe that. But when Jesus says this, he actually takes it a different direction. The problem of hypocrites or the problem of being hypocritical is not that it just damages the church. There is a part of that there. But he says they've already received their reward. Jesus acknowledges that if you go and you do good things to gain the attention of others, you can probably do it. In fact, you can get your pat on the back. You you can receive your congratulations. You can receive that bubbly feeling of, oh, I've accomplished something. But Jesus believes that motivation is actually not enough to bring the satisfaction of significance. That no matter how much you seek the applause of other people, there is not enough applause to satisfy your own personal ego. Because every time you go and you get that pat on the back, what you're left with is, I sure would like another pat on the back. I sure think I could do something better and get a little bit more attention from that. And it turns out that the exchange rate of compliment to critique is horribly skewed. It's it's horribly skewed. You know this because you can receive a hundred compliments and put them in the bank of your heart and just go off skipping. And the second that one critique comes in, That second that person posts that one kind of passive-aggressive, semi-rude thing on your Instagram feed, what's going to weigh in your mind that night? One critique is enough to offset a thousand compliments. We all know this. Whenever uh, Haley and I were dating, uh, I I was going to propose to her um, by going into the Nashville airport. So if you don't know, Nashville is like the music city. Whenever you fly into the airport, uh, they have stages set up where small-time musicians can play music. And so I decided I was going to rent out a stage, and as she's walking into the airport to visit me from New Mexico, I was going to play a love song, 
and then propose right there, you know, like a really good romantic person. Nothing like being engaged in an airport. Uh, and so I did, and uh, I proposed, and she said yes, and it was wonderful. And so as we're leaving, you know, I'm calling my family. We're sending out cell phone recordings so that my family can all see that didn't get to be there. And my, my dad's mom, my, my granny, called me, and she goes, sure, you sure tried singing, didn't you? It's like, ooh, granny. That's... And I don't remember another thing anyone else said to me about my music that day. I don't remember a single compliment. All I remember is that my granny said, you sure tried to sing, didn't you? Like, it just weighs. If she knew that, she would feel so awful. Like, don't, don't tell her about that. But, like, that, that's how compliments and critiques weigh. And Jesus is saying, if you want to go put all of your DNA into what other people think of you, you can do it, but your reward will fall short. It will never be what you want it to be. Jesus doesn't seem to be turning this into a guilt, shame, follow the rules, otherwise you're just a bad person. He seems to be calling his followers to a far better reality where they're actually freed from the opinions of the people around them. That they're set free from this idea that they have to be impressive. So then he closes out in verse 3. He says, no, when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. A lot of times I think we interpret this as be so secretive that like you don't even know what you're doing. You're just like, I don't even know what I'm giving to the church today. I'm just pulling out money and we'll see what. I don't think that's exactly what Jesus is getting at. Here's a quote by Dallas Willard. Uh, I've been reading a lot of his stuff and doing this sermon series and I think he's just on point here. The kind of people who have been so transformed by their daily walk with God that their good deeds naturally flow from their character are precisely the kind of people whose left hand would not notice what their right hand is doing. As, for example, when driving one's own car or simply uh, or speaking one's own native language. What they do, they do naturally, often automatically, simply because of what they are pervasively and internally. These are people who do not have to invest a lot of reflection in doing good for others. Their deeds are in secret, no matter who's watching, for they're absorbed in love of God and of those around them. They hardly notice their own deed and rarely remember it. I think what Jesus is getting at is this idea of not knowing, letting your left hand know what your right hand is doing. It's it's the all-star athlete who has so perfected her sport, she can do the triple back handspring without even thinking. And you're like, dude, I can never do something. And she's just like, that's just what I do. It's the musician that sits down and looks at the sheet music and just starts to play. And it's not even about impressing people. It's not about getting credit. It's just who they are and what they do. In Jesus' mind, when his followers give something over, these actions, giving to the poor, praying, fasting, it's just an outflow of their love for God. It comes naturally because their hearts have been transformed by their Savior, so much so, verse 4, so that your giving may be in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When we become so much like Jesus, the only audience we care about is the Father in heaven who sees. That's when Jesus says you find freedom. That's when you begin to live as Jesus lived, when you begin to live where humanity flourishes, free from the entrapping, entrapping thoughts of trying to find the right balance between others' compliments and critiques, free from all of this pressure into everlasting affirmation of the Heavenly Father. So if we could take all of this and boil it down into one point, I think we could say this. Intentionally living like Jesus 
To do what Jesus did means trusting the Father's attention and approval is enough. Trusting that God's attention for you and his approval of you is far more than what anything this world could offer. That regardless of what the world says about me, God's approval, his attention is far better and a far more freeing motivator that his reward is far better than what any person on this planet could offer me. And so then we may ask, well, so what is God's reward? Because he says it right here at the end, and that the Father who sees in secret will reward you. He says it at the beginning. It's sandwiched in. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others, to be seen by them. Otherwise, you will have no reward with your Father in heaven. Jesus seems to be basing a lot on this term reward. What what is that reward? And the ultimate answer is, Jesus doesn't say. Now, If you are over here thinking, I'm going to do good things so that one day I can get a brand new car and that will be the reward I get. I don't think that's at all what Jesus is saying, number one, because cars didn't exist then. But other reasons on top of that. But I wouldn't want to put too much weight into what is this reward because Jesus just doesn't address that. Rather, this brings up a a particularly interesting point of our modern moral philosophical climate. And I know everyone's heart just leaped at the term moral philosophical climate because that's what everyone loves to think about every day. But, but it's something worth considering, because if you go back and you read guys like Immanuel Kant, who was a philosopher in the 1700s, crazy amounts of influence on modern Western world, uh, he was this huge proponent of what's often referred to as altruism. And altruism is, is the idea that we practice selfless concern for the well-being of others, that, that it really doesn't matter about me, I just need to constantly be selfless for myself, giving to other people that they are made well and I don't matter. And I think that is a good thing. Don't, don't hear me trying to argue against that. I think it's true. So Kant's classic quote is, do the right thing because it is the right thing. That, that's Immanuel Kant. And it's good and, and it's true. So why does Jesus say, give to the poor that your Father in heaven might give you a reward? Surely Immanuel Kant's morality is more pious and reverent than Jesus here because Kant says we don't need a reward whatsoever. And Jesus says, do this because the Father in heaven will reward you. Wait a minute, Jesus, I'm not not supposed to do good to receive a reward. I'm supposed to do good because that's what I'm supposed to do. But I would ask this, what if Jesus is far more in tune to reality? than what any of us are? What if Jesus is far more aware of our desperate need of approval, whether we acknowledge it or not? And what if Jesus is offering a real solution, a more true solution to a problem almost none of us can fully solve on our own? Because here's what I think is true in this world. We are all born with the desperate need of attention and approval. Every single one of us are born with a desperate need for attention and, and approval. Here, here in two and a half months, right, my, my son's going to be born. And he's literally going to come out of the womb crying for attention. It's the first thing he's going to do. And then it's going to continue like that, a theme that's going to go through the foreseeable future. And he's not going to care what time of night it is. He's not going to ask, hey, are you busy right now? I'm thinking I need some attention. I'd like to cry for that if you don't mind. Like, He doesn't care. He's just going to cry for attention because that's what he's going to do. And then as he gets older and as he learns to communicate, it won't just be a cry for attention, although I think that's going to stay pretty prevalent for a while. But it becomes an attempt for approval. 
Hey, Dad, watch me. Hey, 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 watch this. Look, look what I can do. Watch me do this cartwheel. Watch me uh, ride my bike. Watch me cannonball into the pool. Watch me play Fortnite. I don't know. Like, it's just everything kids do. It's a reality of childhood. We've all lived through and we've all encountered. But what if that doesn't go away how we think it does? Because we as mature adults, we like to think, I don't need any of that anymore. But what if there's actually something deep within us that's constantly still seeking for that approval, that's constantly seeking for that attention? And how do we find that in a hyper-broken, hyper-critical world? Where can we find motivation in that? Because you can find your motivation in trying to make money and become rich and gaining attention that way, but I'm just telling you, however rich you can get in Portales, New Mexico, you will find people richer than you. It's not going to work. You can try to get it through degrees that you have, but it doesn't matter how many degrees you have, you'll find someone smarter than you. It doesn't matter how good at sports or music you are, you'll find someone better than you at that. So while our culture suffocates itself with the obsession of image, while it spends billions of dollars every year on beauty and trying to make yourself look young and being well-read and, and trying to keep up with the influencer on Instagram, because that's what we live in. We live in this ridiculous age of image where people get on Instagram and they post like, it's like the mom who has two twins and she posts a picture of her running and pushing her stroller, reading like Nietzsche while she's pushing her stroller. And then you see that, and you're like, I can't push a stroller and read philosophy at the same time. She must be better than me. You think she really does that? Like, no, we just curate this image in hopes that we finally get the approval we've been looking for. And what if we can't find that? Might it be that God has come not to just save us from hell into heaven, absolutely that, but to save us also from this world we've constructed where we desperately need attention and approval? Might it be that God has come to rescue us, giving us his full attention by becoming like us, then giving up his own perfection that he might then approve of us when we can gain his perfection through Jesus' sacrifice. And none of that because we deserve it, but all because of how much he loves us. What if that's the freeing motivation Jesus wants for you? See, here's what I've learned. One more story and we'll, we'll close out. Motivation changes action. And then action will change reality around you. So if you're really just not motivated and you don't do anything, likeliness is nothing around you changes. One morning you wake up particularly motivated, and so you go and it, it changes things. Motivation matters. It sincerely and really matters. So have you ever heard of the name Samuel Pierpoint Langley? If, if you're a real nerd, you may have. Most of you probably have not heard that name before. At the start of the 1900s, um, the, the whole goal of like innovation and inventing of the time was man-powered flight. So much money and investment was being poured into trying to invent a way that man can fly like the birds. This is what we're going to try to do. And Langley was one of those engineers that, that he was set out to do that very thing. Actually, he, he was more than just an inventor uh, and an innovator. He was like 
top of the top. He had a seat at Harvard. He worked at the Smithsonian. He was the best of the best, the smartest of the smart. So much so that the U.S. military actually contracted him out to try to solve this problem. Uh, they invested $50,000 into him, which doesn't sound like much now, but in 1900s, that was close to about $1.5 million investment just into this guy. They gave him the money. He had the connections. Hire the smartest people that you can find. The, the, the New York Times was following him around, reporting on every action he did just in all of, look at how smart this guy, what he's going to accomplish. Keep your eyes locked on him. He's going to do so many great things in his lifetime. Samuel Pierpoint Langley was ridiculously resourced, ridiculously connected, and ridiculously intelligent, and no one really knows his name. Because at the same time, there these two brothers running some bike shops in Dayton, Ohio. They had no college education. Not even the local newspaper cared to what they did in their spare time. No one followed them around. But for them, they, they loved taking the profit they made through their bike shops and trying to tie wings to bikes and see what happened. That's just like what they did in their spare time. I'm not sure if rednecks existed in Dayton, Ohio, but I think I, think I could strap some wings to that bike. And that's what they did. They set out just every day that they got some free time. They would take bikes, they would strap wings to it, and they would see what happened. For them, they loved doing these types of experiments. And then one day, the whole thing just kind of came together, and they did it. They, they flew for all of like 30 seconds, but they, they flew. And then the crowds rushed in, and there was this awe and thundering applause erupted. No, they were in Dayton, Ohio. No one cared. No one saw what they did. They ended up reporting it, and it was days later that it even hit newspaper. The Wright brothers figured out how to fly. Do you know what Langley did when he saw the news article, when he read that? He quit. He was done. Someone else solved it, not me, I'm out. It's a question of motivation. What motivated Langley was his desire to be seen, his motivation to be important. And when that faded, it killed his work ethic. He was done with that. Here's my point in saying all of this. Whatever First Baptist exists for, it's not us. It's not for us to be seen. It's not for us to feel important. It's not for us to be the richest, most successful church in town. That's not why we exist. Because in the long run, like, who cares? I don't mean to say that rudely, but, but it's Portales, New Mexico. Like, we're not going to be the pinnacle leading church in the nation on that. And that's not our goal. Because we may never be the cool church. We may largely go unnoticed. But if our motivation isn't about that, then it doesn't matter. Because our motivation is about going out day after day and doing the work God has laid before us in faith. Trusting that his ways are better, that his reasoning is great. Not in hope that people might see us and give us a little small applause but in the awe and worship of our Father in heaven who already sees and celebrates us. God does not love us any more today because of the amount of people in here versus if this room was half the size. God does not love First Baptist more than he loves a smaller church in town. He does not love a smaller church more. It's not about that to God. 
God doesn't care about that. God just gives his attention and approval. Why? Because he loves us. In fact, he loves us so much that he stepped into time and he took on flesh, not as a king in in a palace, but a baby born in a manger. Not as a politician to live life out in Jerusalem, but as a small rabbi from the town of Nazareth. See, for Jesus, it was never about the glory and the fame. Even though he's God, he deserves every ounce of the glory of fame. And yet he comes and he says, the Son of Man doesn't come to be served, but to serve. It's the heart of our Savior. And then he takes that heart. And in the most supreme act of service that the God of the universe could ever do, he takes it and he allows man to stop that beating heart, to kill him on the cross. So that at Jesus' sacrifice, his perfection, his righteousness might be poured out on anyone who would believe in him. And your sin could be taken onto his shoulders and buried away. That you can look at God the Father and know once and for all that the Father has his full attention to you. And he is willing to give his approval to you. Not because of your good deeds. Not because of your action but because he loves you and because he saves you through Jesus. So what do you do with all this? I think there's some practical things you could say. You could say something along the lines of, so go go do something Jesus-y this week. Go give to somebody, go love somebody, and don't post on Instagram about it. Don't go to your small group and be like, guys, I just got to tell you what I tried to do, so let's pray that God uses that fruit to grow. Like, just do it. And then trust that God does, hands off, and find God's approval and attention enough. Maybe it's that you feel just entrapped by this world of age of the image and curation, and you're just struggling to feel like you're enough. And maybe it's a time to just reflect and say, God, no, I know I'm enough because you've declared me that through Jesus. But whatever it is, maybe it's us as a church saying, hey, what we're about is not just numerical growth. We're about actually saying that this thing is real. And we really believe in who Jesus is and what he taught. Because that's what we do. Whatever your response is, if you want to come give your life to Jesus for the first time, that you can know what it means to be enough, I'll be right here. I would love to talk and pray with you. If you want to come and just lay something down at the altar, you can do that. If you want to give yourself to him, if you want to spend time in your pew praying, if you just want to stand up and worship, this is your time to respond. That we might truly be people that trust God's attention and approval is enough. Father God, we thank you for your love and kindness. We thank you that your attention has been poured out to us regardless of the things we've done or not done and that we can know that. God, I pray that you would help us to celebrate and experience what it means to have the attention of the creator right here in our midst. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.